Welcome to Beaver Lodge Alliance's sermon podcast. We're so glad to join you. This is the latest sermon. We pray that you would receive encouragement, exhortation, and that Jesus would speak to you through this sermon. Enjoy. My name is Nick. I have the privilege to serve uh, with Dave on the elders board. And uh, as Dave mentioned, uh, Amy and I have been coming to this church for quite some time, and it's an absolute privilege to uh, step into that role as an elder, and it's a privilege to be here today to share with you guys. Um, today, I'm going to be talking about the second uh, week in our Sabbath series. Uh, last week, uh, Pastor Amy, Amy spoke about rhythm, and then this week, I'll be speaking about rest. Now, uh, this was a, a prepared sermon series, uh, so we actually got a bit of a shortcut. A lot of the notes were done for us, uh, which is really handy. Um, so just bear with me. There are a few stats in here about like, uh, you know, what Americans do because the guy was an American and he was actually preaching. He prepared it for uh, speaking to uh, British people. So, you know, just give you a heads up. Things might seem a little off, but I did my best to try to make it applicable to us. So part two, rest. Now, a spiritual journey, my spiritual journey, many people's spiritual journey begins with desire. It starts with a desire to follow Jesus, to be transformed into a new kind of person. Now, desire is the engine of our lives. It's what drives us. It's what drives uh, me to get out of the bed in the morning, right? Uh, but when we pay close attention to the inner dynamics of the heart, we realize desire is actually fleeting. It's never fully, truly satisfying. A thousand years before Christ, the writer of Ecclesiastes said, the eye is not satisfied with seeing. A more recent poet said, I can't get no satisfaction. No matter how much we get it, it's never enough. Thomas Aquinas, a medieval intellectual, he asked the question, what would it take to satisfy human desire? He came up with his answer after about 900 pages. He said, everything. We would have to experience everything and everyone, and everyone would have to experience us if we were to be fully satisfied. That description means that we would have to be infinite, but we're not. We're finite. So all of us live with chronically unsatisfied desires. The word that the writers of the Bible use to describe this is restlessness. Now, when I think of restlessness, it's one of those words that I never actually stop to think about. It's like, I'm restless, I'm fidgety, I can't sit still. I just thought, hey, you're restless, you, you know, my kid's restless, you're restless, just stop being restless, you're doing all kinds of stuff. Uh, but what I realized just last week was that restless is a, it's a compound word, restlessness, it's restless. It means that uh, you're, you're unable to rest, it's without rest. There is no rest. So a chronic desire and the resulting restlessness, it's an ancient problem rooted in human nature. But in our culture, it's actually been very much manipulated by our consumerism, and in particular, advertising. It's basically an, an attempt, advertising, and it's an attempt to monetize, to make money off of our own restlessness. So again, here's a stat, I'm not sure if it's true, I'll throw it out there, 4,000 advertisements per day. Apparently that's how many ads we see per day. And all of those are designed to 
leave us feeling restless and unsatisfied. Countless dollars are spent on research to understand and apply methods that get people to not only see ads, but then get people to buy what's actually being advertised. And it works, we fall for it a lot, right? I, I'm guilty of this, flipping through a feed. Hey, that keychain looks pretty cool. Good thing I can buy it right now. Um, we're chasing more. More money, more clothes, more keychains, more things, more square feet in our house, more experiences, more stamps on your passport, more relationships, more and more. And it's, it's never quite enough. Now, restlessness is the way of life, and rest seems just out of reach because I can't buy my way into rest. So some cultures have called this the wheel of suffering. It's not so much a religious idea, it's more of a, it's a cogent insight of human nature. Uh, the wheel of suffering, uh, you start with craving, uh, and then there's aversion, right? So I'm lusting after something, or I'm pursuing something, I'm craving it, but I'm also running away from something too. I'm avert, avert, averted to it. I have aversion to it. Uh, so craving is the chasing of desire, and then aversion is the running away from what I don't want. It's, it could be what I fear. It could be what's causing me pain. But that suffering, the result is suffering because the moment that I catch that thing, the moment we catch it, we immediately want something more. Oh, I've got a beautiful house, but I could have a hot tub. I could have a really nice deck with a hot tub on it. I just want more. Or, you know, this has happened too. <laughs> There's a bit of buyer's remorse. Man, that's a really nice new car, but uh, I spent a lot of money on it. And the moment I solve a problem, a new problem takes it, uh, pops up to take its place. Is there a way off the wheel of craving and aversion, chasing after desire from an unsatisfying end? Is there a way away from running from our fears? So in more biblical language, is there a way to fight against the restlessness of the human heart and the age which we belong? And yes, if you're here last week and this week, it's Sabbath. Right? Now, the Hebrew term, uh, because I'm in a church and that's what I've heard every pastor do, is they say this is the Hebrew term, it's Shabbat. Uh, Sabbath is a practice from the way of Jesus by which we war against the never truly satisfying restlessness of our age. And instead, we take on the easy yoke of Jesus, our rabbi, to find rest for our souls. Now, as Pastor Amy said in the previous session, there's four movements uh, for the Sabbath. Stop, rest, delight, and worship. And this week is rest. So to start off, uh, let's look at Genesis 2, verse 2, because it's the beginning. Genesis 2, verse 2, By the seventh day God had finished the work he had been doing, so on the seventh day he rested from all his work. And then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. Now, hear, hear the word rest. What do you think? I think it's, it's taking a break. Maybe it's a day off, a few hours of quiet, maybe some time to relax. But the idea behind Sabbath, behind Shabbat, is far more. It's, it's a holistic rest, or what Jesus calls rest for your souls, for your whole being. And on the Sabbath, we rest from work. All work. It's not just paid work. It's not just the vocation, the job that we do. It's all work. 
including chores, errands, to-do lists, we rest from working. And, and there's more. Rabbi Abraham, Abraham Herschel, uh, in his book, aptly named The Sabbath, says we should not rest just from work, but even thinking about work. Now, psychologically, when we think about work, even if we're at home resting, our brains will secrete the same stress chemicals uh, as if we were in that actual situation. Our bodies are amazing creations. We can imagine and simulate situations in our brain. And our brains, our minds are so powerful that what we think actually affects our bodies. And I was thinking about, okay, what, what, what stressful situation do we all share that you could just close your eyes and imagine, right? I think pretty much everyone here has a driver's license, right? How did you feel the night before, the day before your, your driver's test? Right? I know I was, I was nervous, right? Because everyone else had passed. I didn't want to be that one guy that failed the first time. But go back to that time. How do you feel in your chest? How did you feel at the time? You have, you're thinking about it. All you're doing is thinking about it, but you can have a physical reaction. Even though it was a few years ago. Uh, but even just, that's, that's the past. But imagine looking forward to the future. Right? If we're thinking about work, if we're thinking about what we have to do, I've got to do this, and I've got to do this, well, we've got to do this, figure this out, right? your brain will secrete those same chemicals. So when we rest, we rest from even the thought of working. The Sabbath is rest from wanting and worrying. We can get off that wheel of suffering. We stop striving, and we come to rest. So to unpack this idea, let's dig a little deeper into the Bible for a few minutes in Deuteronomy 5. So uh, Deuteronomy, it's part of the books of Moses in Hebrew. It's called the Torah. And in Torah, in the books of Moses, the Ten Commandments are, are actually recorded twice. First time is when uh, Moses comes down from Mount Sinai in Exodus 20. It's right after the Israelites have been set free from Egypt. And the second time is in Deuteronomy 5. Uh, they're on the edge of the Jordan. They're, they're about to enter into the Promised Land. And there's 40 years between Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5. 40 years. So that means that Deuteronomy 5 is to the next generation. They, this generation was unborn, or maybe they were still really young at Mount Sinai. So this generation, they didn't know, they didn't know what slavery was like in Egypt. The Sabbath command here is the same, it's similar, but it's a little bit different. So Deuteronomy 5, 12 to 15. Observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy, as the Lord your God has commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you, nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servants, nor your ox, your donkey, or any of your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns, so that your male and female servants may rest as you do. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt, and that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. So there are two major differences between the Exodus 20 and the Deuteronomy 5. The first is fairly minor. Uh, in Exodus, it's remember the Sabbath, uh, but in Deuteronomy, it's observe the Sabbath. So the, the words are a bit different. Uh, Observe the Sabbath is, is shamar. It means to keep watch, to guard over. And, and think about how we observe and guard over a holiday. We, we put a lot of stock in Christmas, right? We, we get uh, a day off, two days off, actually, at Christmas. 
um, and we come together as family and we guard that day. We set that day aside. We make it special. We make it unique. And that's the idea. Sabbath is it's like a weekly holiday we're to keep, lest it become just another ordinary day. And in the ancient Jewish liturgy to begin the Sabbath, you, you light not one but two candles, and this is to symbolize uh, that Sabbath was given in two commands, remember the Sabbath and observe the Sabbath. So that's the first change. And then for, for the good chunk of it, uh, between Exodus and Deuteronomy, the command is verbatim, but until the end, and there's a major change. In Exodus, the last part of the command reads, for in six days the Lord Yahweh made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, Yahweh, the Lord, blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. But in Deuteronomy, the ending says, remember that you were slaves in Egypt, but the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. So it's the same command, keep the Sabbath, work for six days, keep the seventh holy. But it's a different rationale behind the command. In Exodus, the rationale is grounded in the story of creation. In Deuteronomy, it's grounded in the story of liberation. You were slaves in Egypt, but you're not slaves anymore. And at Sinai, in Exodus, the Sabbath is about rhythm. God is trying to introduce rhythm to his people. They don't know what it looks like. They've been slaves for hundreds of years. But in Deuteronomy, it's about resistance. Resist going back to the ways of Egypt. Again, last session was about rhythm. This session is about resistance. So, a few more minutes to, to lay this out. In the Exodus story, there's all sorts of language about Egypt's culture and restlessness. So, for example, in Exodus 3, uh, Pharaoh is, is talking about and, and to Moses about the Israelites. They were still slaves in Egypt at that time. You know, so just picture Pharaoh however you want to picture him. Uh, standing over Moses, yelling at him. You know, why are you taking the people away from their label? Get back to work! Sorry, from their labor, get back to work. You know, make the work harder so that they keep working. And Pharaoh said, lazy! That's what you are, you're lazy! This is why you keep saying to us, let's go sacrifice to the Lord. Get to work! You know, we're not going to give you any straw, but you have to produce the full quote of bricks. Uh, in the story, uh, Pharaoh's a tyrant, no matter how hard the Hebrews worked, it was never enough. They lived under the oppressive yoke. They had this daily quota they had to fulfill. And it was always more, it was more and more. And Pharaoh, uh, he was a product of the socioeconomic system of Egypt as a whole. So Israel, uh, the, the slaves, they were making bricks to build cities and monuments that were meant to edify Pharaoh that were meant to give glory to the man of Pharaoh. So the whole structure of Egypt, it's an empire that's built on the backs of slavery. And the pinnacle of that culture, who you wanted to emulate, who you wanted to be, that was Pharaoh. He lived a lavish, opulent lifestyle, and it was held up by cheap slave labor. And when you're a slave, you don't get a Sabbath. They're slaves, are subhuman. Slaves are a commodity to buy and sell. And they only have value in what they can produce. They work every day, and then they die. In Egypt, in the, in the way of empire, rest is what comes when you have enough people under you to do the work for you. And so, God's command to the Hebrew people is to remember, you're not slaves anymore, you're a people set apart, you're different, 
You're under a new king. There's no daily quota. There's no taskmaster over your head. And, this is key, this is probably more important, remember to never become a slave driver yourself. Don't be the one that forces others to work so that they build you up. And hence the command about your male and female servants. The foreigner, the animals, all are equal under the Sabbath. All must rest. And we need this practice more than ever because Pharaoh and Egypt and empire, they're alive, they're well. Now in the literally lit, literary design of the Bible, Egypt is an archetype. It's similar to, to Babylon later on. Uh, it was a real empire. It was an enduring and powerful empire. But Egypt is symbolic of all the other empires through time. It's a symbol of humanity making an idol to itself and its own accomplishments. So when you think of Egypt, what image comes to mind? Maybe it's something like this. Uh, this is uh, King Tutankhamun. Um, this is his sarcophagus, his burial sarcophagus. But what stands out to you? Uh, what is he holding? He... Sorry? Whips? Uh, ah, I never thought that was a whip, but fair enough. All right, uh, he's got a rod, a rod, a uh, cane, a rod, and, and that's, that's meant to be a symbol of authority, um, and the whip too. Uh, but the rod, this, the scepter, it's been a symbol that it's, it's worked its way through the ages, and we actually still have this today. It's a symbol of earthly authority, of empire, uh, I mean, just look, Charles V of France, shown here, uh, this is a, from the 1300s, uh, what's he holding? He's got a, a rod, a scepter. Another king, more recently, King Charles, shown here with a rod, and it's symbolizing the British authority, a British empire. It, the British empire, it expanded to be the largest, most powerful empire the world has ever known. And an old saying went, is, is if you heard it, the sun never sets on the British empire. That was because the empire was so big. It was worldwide. And at all times, it was day somewhere in the British Empire. And while the empire has significantly diminished over time and downsized, the symbols of that era of grandeur still endure. We're not immune here in Canada. Uh, this is Henry or Kevin Vickers. He's formerly the sergeant of arms of our national parliament. Uh, he's carrying the ceremonial mace symbolizing the authority of our government. Now, I'm not here to say that inherently the government's evil and that they're, uh, you know, wielding un ungodly authority over us. I mean, God instills authority. By his authority, people rule. And not all these symbols are bad or evil, but what authority does the rod represent? How is that authority being used? Does the rod represent coercion and force, or does it symbolize a graceful call and an invitation? So even now, empire is still alive in all parts of our world. And going back to Egypt, you know what? If you're an Egyptian, it actually doesn't sound that bad. But if you're a slave serving the Egyptians, it's pretty horrible. Now, another stat I'll throw out there. So 70% of all of humanity controls only 3% of the entire wealth. Okay, so a lot of people don't control much wealth. And at the other end, it's 0.6%. 0.6% control 40% of the world's wealth. Okay, so if you're watching this, you know, throw it a guess. Uh, we're probably towards the top end of that. Maybe not. 
But think about it, below us are billions of people who make work, who work hard every day to make things that, that we enjoy, phones, shoes, clothes. Now we think of slavery as a tragedy from the past, but still there are millions of slaves every day. Most are women and children with no other means of support. But hear me out here, hear me clearly, I'm not here to blame anyone. I'm not here to, uh, I'm not saying we need to be guilt-ridden just because we were born in this country at this particular time and we live now by no, by no fault of our own. But we can and we should honestly reflect on where we're at in our land of, of abundance. And so Egypt isn't just a historical nation-state. It's, it's a running theme in the library of Scripture for a culture of restlessness, of which there are many examples through history and around the world today. It's a culture unchecked, with unchecked desire and a drive for more, for continual more. So it's more accomplishment, more work. And currently, uh, in our culture in the West, we work more than ever before. Uh, there's a Japanese word, it's uh, karoshi, I'm butchering all these words, I'm sorry. Uh, karoshi, it means death by overwork. Uh, North Americans work 137 more hours per year than the Japanese. 260 more hours than uh, British people, and apparently we work 499 more hours per year than the French. I don't know what they have going on, but good for them. Uh, and yet in the 1960s, with the rise of labor-saving devices, you know, dishwashers, central heating, uh, even computers, uh, there were predictions that within a mere few decades, we'd be working only 20 to 30 hours a week. We'd be living in leisure. Yet leisure time's down 37% since the 60s. Now, there's quite a few young people here. As a general rule, uh, this is actually more true for older generations. Younger generations are generally working less, but it's not, it's not clear that they're better off. It's not clear that their rest is actually Sabbath rest, whole rest. As a culture, though, we work more than ever before. And we, we have more than ever before. Conservative estimates say that we spend uh, two to ten times more uh, on goods and services than people in the, uh, the 1940s. Our homes are much bigger, three times larger, full of more than twice as many things. The average American home has 300,000 items in it. And that's not just for the rich, that's, that's average. Now again, I don't know if this stat means like they're counting every single screw in the wall. But 300,000 items, like that's quite a bit. And meanwhile, around the world, or hiding in plain sight of us, there's people that are barely able to put food on the table. But in spite of all the things we have, despite of all the work we do, uh, happiness levels in the West, they only hit their peak in the 50s. They've been in decline ever since. And I've seen this personally more and more. I get news articles when I'm flipping through my phone, uh, articles like, oh, the key to happiness, and do these five things for a fulfilled life. Hey, maybe it's because of what I look up on my phone otherwise. Maybe. Or, and, maybe it's because this, these are the types of articles that people are reading these days. This is the type of information. This is the content that they're looking for. To sum up, we work more than ever before. We have more than ever before. We're not happy. It's Egypt all over again. It's easy to get sucked into our culture. It's easy to feel like we just have to work. We just have to get those extra hours in to get ahead. It's easy to say, oh, we have to have a certain standard of living to be happy. 
if I just have X number of shoes or X number of outfits, you know, if I just have a little bit bigger house, I'll be happy. If I just have, do this thing, if I buy this thing, if I participate in this part of the economy, you know, even though that part does great harm, it's so easy just to say that's how it is, but it doesn't have to be this way. Rest is an act of resistance. It's an act of defiance against empire. It's a way of saying, with our whole body, enough. Enough work? Work is a good thing, but it's not the thing. Enough stuff? Stuff. It's not bad, but most of us, we have more than enough. Sabbath is a way to break our addiction to the twin gods in the West of accomplishment and accumulation. Now, these things, uh, accomplishment, accumulation, they aren't evil. They can even be, they can be good when they serve a just purpose, but there is a limit. At some point, we need to draw a line in the sand, and I need to say no further. I don't need to work more hours. I don't need to make more money. I don't need the latest car or phone. I don't need the perfect grade or the perfect body or the perfect yard. You see, Pharaoh and his army are at the bottom of the Red Sea. Pharaoh's pursuit of greed and more destroyed him. He was leading those people, and he's responsible for the destruction of everyone with him that day. But we were free. And I, I have all that I need to thrive with God in this world. I'm part of a new kingdom now. There's a new king. Well, remember in Genesis 2, God worked for six days and he blessed the seventh. He made it holy. Why? Because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. It was the rest that was holy. God knew that six days was enough. And in six days he knew when to stop. See, God is the God of knowing when to stop. Through Sabbath, God teaches us to know when enough is enough. Sabbath is an act of resistance. It's a spiritual battle, which means when you practice Sabbath, you know, you're going to feel resistance. So, what external uh, resistance? There's external and internal resistance. What external resistance can we expect? See, the culture all around us, it's Sabbath-less. It's rhythm-less. We have this hollow-out-your-soul culture that's just going to squeeze and suck everything out of you and then leave you. To Sabbath, it requires intentionality, preparation, and a resolute determination to go against the flow of our current cultural tide. It's to live differently, and it's not easy, but when you do, you stand against what the Apostle Paul calls the principalities and powers. Now, the theologian Walter Wink defines the powers of uh, that Paul referred to as heavenly and earthly, divine and human, spiritual and political, invisible and visible. These are the metaphors that keep us and others from Sabbath rest. Self-promotion, self-reliance, arrogance, pride, greed, corruption, all these forces are animated by dark spiritual forces, and they're all anti-rest, anti-Sabbath. Through Sabbath, we defy these powers and align ourselves with the God of Sabbath, with the God of rest. But there's also internal factors as well, internal resistance. See, Egypt isn't just around us, it's embedded in us. So why did God 
bring his people into the desert after Egypt. And it wasn't to get his people out of Egypt. He could have worked miracles when they were in Egypt. But it was to get Egypt out of his people. To Sabbath and to rest, we have to resist the internal dynamics of restlessness in our fallen heart. We have to resist greed and envy, discontentment. Uh, We have to deal with anxiety. We have to deal with addictions. With all the practices, with God himself, we feel this push-pull dynamic. There's a tug of war inside of us. Uh, Right? How many times, uh, if you're familiar with it, did the Israelites say to Moses, hey, take us back to Egypt. At least we had food there or water or shelter or shade. Right? They craved what they knew because it was comfortable. That's what they knew. But God heard them, and even in the desert, he provided everything they needed. It wasn't what they thought they needed, but it was enough. And, and it was better than the empire that they knew. We feel a pull towards Jesus and his way, a genuine desire to be with him and find rest, but we also feel an aversion to push away from Jesus in his way. There's a, res- a resistance and reluctance to fully give ourselves to God. There's a reluctance to give up our tasks and our list of things to do. But in the practice of Sabbath, we feel this push-pull dynamic in our hearts. Now, Jesus says, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. But how is this spiritual battle and wrestling with resistance, how is this light and easy? Now, the verse when Jesus says, my yoke is easy, this this verse used to really annoy me. This was frustrating. It's like, come on, really? Really? You want me to go against? You want me to stick myself out there with uh, my friends in public and and make a stand for Jesus? I'm going to get ridiculed, right? I care what people think about me. Yeah, I'm a people pleaser, right? So I care about that. It's not easy. And I found sacrificing my own tendencies of empire. It doesn't come naturally to me. It's not easy. I'm not good at it. But... Through my own significant errors, I've learned that his yoke is easy, and it is light, and I'm not saying that just to, be, to, to make it sound trite, but it's because if I try to live any other way, the results, they become this destructive burden. I actually become like Pharaoh. And I don't believe Jesus is saying that everything is going to be roses and butterflies and it's going to be prime rib every night. But the way of Jesus, the way of Sabbath, compared to the way of empire, whose consequences are ultimately easier to bear? So let me sum up. Um, Yeah, the worship team can can come back up. Sabbath rest is our secret weapon in the struggle against the powers of our age. It's an entire day to have enough. An entire day of rest. Don't worry. Hey, the work's going to be there for tomorrow. But it's not for today. In those push-pull moments when you have to rest from both, sorry, when you have to resist both external and internal uh, forces, Remember, God is the king, but he's nothing like Pharaoh. He is the Sabbath maker. He's the Sabbath keeper. Jesus called himself the Lord of the Sabbath, and he's offering you rest for your souls.
See, we're not slaves anymore. Empire actually no longer has any hold on us. The way of empire, it's the opposite way of God. Empire uses the rod and the mace to demand obedience. Empire uses force and manipulation to gain compliance. In God's way, he calls us like the good shepherd. He calls us by name. He invites us in. And like uh, Pastor Amy said last week, are you tired, worn out? Are you burned out on religion? Man, this chokes me up. So, will you resist? Isn't that beautiful? Have you had a good morning? Yeah. Nick, thank you. Worship team, thank you. Scott and Tammy, thank you for the decorations we see here. It's beautiful. Would you honor these people for their service? Give them a warm round of applause, please. <clears throat> it's powerful to think of rest as resistance. I'm going to read Jesus' invitation and then turn the last part of this as to a challenge and let this be our benediction as we wrap up here this morning. So here's Jesus' invitation. Are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. Church, I bless you now to see and understand and to take a real rest. Would you walk with him? Would you work with him? Would you watch how he does it? Would you learn his unforced rhythms of grace? He will not lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. He's asking you, inviting you. Would you keep company with him? You will learn to live freely and lightly. Be blessed. Have a great week. Thank you for listening to our podcast today. If you'd like more information about us or find out ways to contact us, visit our website at www.beaverlodgealliancechurch.com. We pray today that you would experience the love, presence, and power of Jesus Christ and then make him known.